Before we begin our sermon today, I, uh, I was kind of watching the news, and my heart was feeling heavy for a lot of things that were going on in the world. Um, one thing that stuck out a little more than the other things was that there was kind of a, uh, a tragedy in Seoul, Korea, where um, over 120 people were killed and trampled during a Halloween event. And so um, we're going to hold the world in prayer today. And I know that all of you are holding your own um, corners of your life in prayer as well, that there are things going on. But uh, when things are difficult, we go to God in prayer. And when things are good, we go to God in prayer. And in everything in between, we go to God in prayer. And so we're going to recite the Lord's Prayer together, if you would join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we are in a uh, series that we just started last week. It is called Waiting Well. And the reason why we're in a series on waiting is because as we approach Advent, which is the arrival of Jesus, we understand that much of our Christian life is spent in between the delivering of God's promises. That he does enact really big things in our life. He does uh, show up in really big ways. He did deliver the Messiah. But in between these things, there's a lot of moments where we have to wait. And how we wait is just as important as what we are waiting for. So last week we talked about what we are waiting for and the renewal of the heavens and the earth and then in the resurrection of our new bodies and all of this and kind of how it feels as we wait in that tension. And today we're wrestling with a question, how do we wait? While we wait, how do we wait? I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer, okay? We listen. How do we wait? We listen to the voice of God. Now, that begs a kind of a simple but not yet so very easy question, and that is, how do I hear the voice of God, and what does that mean? Many of us in this room, how many of you have ever been frustrated that you have been trying to hear the voice of God and feel like you can't and determine his will? Okay, all right, so we have some liars in the room on a Sunday morning. That's great. <laughs> you know, the last few years, they've been really difficult for everyone. For some of you in this room, this may be a colossal understatement, right? And this collective trauma has left our culture in a place that is very chaotic, right? Fear is a very effective weapon when it comes to keeping us from loving one another. And it's anything that, that chaos generates, it's fear. Which is why we spent so much time soaking in the wisdom of the book of James over the last couple of months. We have to find ourselves in a posture of discipleship, where we are being spiritually formed more by Jesus— than we are by the chaos of this world. The, the question I want to pose to you is, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? When you break down the amount of media that you consume, movies, the podcast, the music, the streaming, the conversations that we're having, the, the leaders that we are trusting, what percentage of that content revolves around an effort to know the voice of God? If you really broke it down, and gave it a percentage. How much percentage, what percentage of your life is spent pointing you to the voice of God and the will of God? Because if we want to be formed by the love of God 
and not by the fear and the chaos of this world, we must be able to hear the voice of God. But what does that mean exactly? Now, I don't come to you this morning as an expert in hearing God. I do come to you as an expert in wrestling with wanting to hear the voice of God. My entire Christian life has been spent wrestling with this concept. And I do believe that in the wrestling, that God has spoken to me. And I do believe that he continues to speak to me in my life. But rarely is it as simple as, oh, God just told me. Rarely is it just that simple. So what we're going to talk about today is simultaneously really simple, but not so easy. How do we hear God? But before we get to that question, how do we hear God? First, we need to answer this question. Why do I want to hear from God? Why do you want to hear from God? Because our ability to hear God, I think, has a lot to do with our motivations, our reasons for wanting to hear him. There's a Christian theologian and philosopher and author named Dallas Willard. He wrote a book called Hearing God. I'm going to quote him a lot in this message. He wrote this, Our failure to hear his voice when we want to is due to the fact that we do not in general want to hear it, that we want it only when we think we need it. Do we desire to commune with God because we love him or because we need something? Is our motivation pure? If the aim of hearing God's voice is to use his name to gain approval over something I want, or to use his name to leverage, give me advantage over something, I've already missed the point of what prayer is, right? The desire to hear God's voice must be rooted in the desire to love God and to love others. In fact, every spiritual practice, any kind of spiritual discipline that you have, the desire needs to be that you love God and you love others. Otherwise, you've missed the point. Someone once said that I don't pray because I love to pray. I pray because I love Jesus, right? In 1 John 4, it writes this, Dear John, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And this is really what hearing God is all about. Hearing God is about knowing him. Not just knowing what he wants for me, but having a reciprocal relationship with our Heavenly Father. That's what hearing God is supposed to be about. Willard wrote this, We must make it, therefore, our primary goal not just to hear the voice of God, but to be mature people in a loving relationship with him. Only in this way will we hear him rightly. Okay, off the top of your head, first, or sorry, third of the Ten Commandments. You will not misuse the name of the Lord. Now, contrary to popular belief, uh, this term, misuse the name of the Lord, it's not about like stubbing your toe and saying Jesus Christ or like pairing the word of God with a cuss word. Really, what this word misuse is, is to give false testimony of, to speak falsely of, and to morally ruin. That's what this word misuse means. This is about using God's name to leverage my own agenda, to conveniently put God's name on my will. When this happens, that's when we reject the true God for an idol God, lowercase g. And that God sounds a lot like me. And that God is very permissive. And I can usually get that God to agree to and say the things I want him to say. But that God is not the Lord of the universe. That's the God that I've created in my own mind. 
As someone who's worked a lot with youth and young adults, I can't tell you how many times I have encountered young people and stories of Christians walking up to young, other young Christians and saying something like, God told me that we're supposed to get married. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying he can't do stuff like that, but like if he did, you know, play it cool, you know? <laughs> Icebreaker, you know, start, start slow. God told me I'm supposed to be your husband. I think one of us has a bad connection because that's not what he's saying to me. (laughs) See, I think we often want to hear God because we want leverage. We want his stamp of approval over something that we want to do. I know this is true of me. My default mode, like 99% of the time, is to to ignore God's voice. But then I really want something or I have a really big decision. Then I'm on my knees in prayer. Anyone else find that they treat God this way? Yeah. Oh, thank you for your honesty. (laughs) We sometimes get this idea that Jesus is like this fairy dust that we get to sprinkle on top of our lives, and it makes our lives the way that we want it better. And I think that this saddens him, because Jesus, the way that he loves and his sacrifice, was not just to give us a genie in a bottle kind of relationship. He actually wants to be with you. He loves you. He desires to know you and to be known by you. People who hear God are first and foremost people who actually want to hear God because they have a relationship with him. Not just when they think they need him, but all the time. And there are lots of other competing voices in our heads, right, that we hear all the time. I have a friend who said sometimes we become so influenced by what's on the outside that we forget to be what's influenced what's on the inside. That's the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because we as Christians, think about it, we believe in a living God, who dwells inside of us, the Holy Spirit. And we believe that through his voice, God speaks to us. But there are competing voices that are trying to be louder than that voice, right? There's my voice. That one's pretty strong. It tends to get what it wants. There's uh, evil voices. There's external voices from parents and mentors and teachers and friends, discouraging, encouraging. There's a cacophony of voices. How do we, in this mess, Learn how to discern which voice is God's. How do we do that? In John 10, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. So he uses the analogy of shepherding. Now, I'm not a shepherd, nor have I ever shepherded. um, But I was watching this documentary on sheep in Scotland and shepherds. And what's interesting is that sometimes the the flocks will, um, two different flocks will get together and graze in the same field. And they'll kind of intermingle and get all mixed up. But then when it's time to leave... They have no problem falling back in line and going back to their own shepherd. You know why? Because they know his voice. They know exactly who their shepherd is and what it sounds like. So when there's a chaos going on, they know exactly how to find him. Our theology tells us that hearing the voice of God is possible. So the question is, are we hungry for it? And why? Today we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture that does a really good job showing us what it looks like when we really want to hear God's voice. We're going to be reading out of Nehemiah chapter 8. If you want to turn there, I'll give you some time uh, while I give you some context for the passage. Ezra Nehemiah was originally one work and one scroll inside of what we know as the Old Testament today. And there's lots of different genres of the scriptures. This one is a historical narrative. Now the Jerusalem's, this is after the Babylonians have destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and the people are now in exile. 
And then the Persians came along and conquered the Babylonians. And we find ourselves in this story where they are separated from their culture, they're separated from their home, they're separated from their way of life, and they're living in uh, a hostile territory. And we kind of find ourselves uh, parallel to them in some ways, right? The Israelites, they were shut out of their land and their culture for a generation. We were shut down and shut in for about 18 months, right? And along the way, we endured all sorts of things, (laughs) wildfires, social unrest, political polarization. It was a season of hardship and trial. And this passage speaks to what the Israelites' first instinct was upon coming back to a new normal, upon coming back to the land of their ancestors. So uh, the Jews, they begin to furry favor with the kings of Babylon and and, and Persia, right? Um, Kind of like Joseph and the Pharaoh. Some of the Israelites get to return back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding their community. Someone named Zerubbabel, he leads the people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And then Ezra comes along and starts to teach the Torah and kind of rebuild the the community around the scriptures. And then Nehemiah comes along and wants to rebuild the walls, because the walls are what create a secure society. Now, Nehemiah, his name is Nahemiah, which means comfort of Yahweh. And his heart broke for the state of Jerusalem. He longed to see his people restored and to see Yahweh exalted. So he went to this Persian king, and he basically asked him to fund his project, and he said yes. So they get back to Jerusalem, they rebuild the walls, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild their community, and they're all together, and they all get together for the first time as an established community. And what they do is they open the scriptures. They're starting to feel reestablished, they're trying to figure out what their identity looks like, and so they open the scriptures. Go ahead and go to Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood a bunch of Hebrew names I can't pronounce. And then on his left were more Hebrew names I can't pronounce. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Skip down to verse 9. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send to those uh, who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Okay, so their first instinct upon gathering together and getting back to the new normal was to open the scriptures. It was the people's idea. Now, they're, they're gathered before this place called the Watergate, 
Okay, the water gate was the one source of fresh water for the entire city. So this is a metaphor that the only place of life where it's going to flow from will be the scriptures. And I'll be honest, I don't always have a posture towards the scriptures like that. I don't always have this thirst or this yearning for the word, like it's water in the desert, right? What if it was? What if that was my first instinct in the wilderness? When it's hot outside, we often crave things like soda or alcohol or coffee or whatever, but we know that that doesn't actually help our bodies. What we need is water. And in the same way, spiritually, I find myself running to other distractions when I'm in the midst of struggle, when I'm in the wilderness, as it were. And it might satisfy me for a moment, but it doesn't hydrate me. It doesn't give me life, right? Now, in verses 8 through 12, this is the first account in the scriptures of what we would call like expository preaching. All of the Levites are, are preaching and basically doing these little Bible studies with all of the people of Israel. Because imagine this. Ezra's on this huge wooden plate. It has to be huge because there's about 45,000 men and women gathered around. So it's got to be this really big platform. And as he's preaching the word and the law, the Levites are going around and explaining what the law of Moses means, what these scriptures teachings actually tell us. Because many people are illiterate, so they're having to hear and they're having to understand. And this is really important. It's really important. Because anyone who is good at memorizing scripture can commit, or memorizing anything, can commit scripture to memory and throw it in people's faces when they want to flex their religious muscles, right? Anyone can do that. In fact, most cults that people get sucked into, guess what they use to kind of subdue people? The Bible. Anyone heard of the, the case of the Turpin family in Southern California? Basically, it was this married couple. They had 13 children, and for the better part of a decade, they kept their children in the house and didn't let them leave. They didn't let them get an education. They didn't let them get medical attention. They abused them. They starved them. And the whole time, what they used to keep their children subdued was the scriptures. They used the scriptures to invoke fear in their kids, and they abused them for over a decade. Anyone can use the scriptures to manipulate someone. Anyone can misuse the name of the Lord and put it upon their own agenda, right? But maintaining a humble curiosity, desiring to prayerfully consider the meaning of the scriptures, that is fertile ground for the work of the Spirit in our lives. We'll get into that in a bit, but wisdom is a really high value when it comes to navigating a life of faith. So taking this image, Thousands and thousands of people. People are crying and weeping and wailing in the crowd because they are undone when they hear the Torah. They're considering what they're hearing and they're realizing just how far they've fallen from God's desires from them for them. And the, and the priests are like, don't weep. Guys, this is not the time for this. The scriptures are being read aloud. This is an outpouring of God's desire to commune with us. He had us write all of this down so that we could never forget the story and remember who he is, that he has a plan to save the world. And then we get this really famous verse, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, the English translations in most of our Bibles are a little clunky around this phrase, the way the grammar is set up. When I grew up, I basically heard this and thought, oh, okay, the joy that the Lord gives me makes me powerful and allows me to endure. 
But actually, the way that this verbiage is, the way that this uh, grammar is broken down, what it really means is the joy that the Lord has over you is where you find refuge. It's different, right? The joy that the Lord has over us is where we find our protection. Because think about it, they're experiencing remorse. They are grieving. They're feeling undone by the scriptures, and they're saying, no, listen, all of this, all of this is because God loves you. So even if God's word strikes a chord of repentance in you, this is reason to celebrate. How many of you know that repentance can be a joyful discipline? To discover how you've been harming yourself and other people and realize there's another way. That can be a joyful experience. The word of the Lord causes them to become undone in grief and then flipped and they're overjoyed in celebration. Huge crowds of thousands of people on their face in worship because they are moved in their spirits by the goodness of God. How hungry are we for the voice of God in our lives? Are we hungry like that? Willard says, Few people arise in the morning as hungry for God as they are for cornflakes, toast, and eggs. Which I have to relate to, I have to be honest. But there's something behind this clever saying. When I wake up in the morning, my first thought is usually my carnal needs, right? I'm hungry, I need to stretch, I needed that more as I've gotten older, right? Uh, I need coffee in order to be kind to anyone that I might see during the day. There are things that I want to address in my body and in my carnal needs, but rarely do I wake up and the first thought in my mind is, God, what would you say to me today? What do you want from me right now? Are we hungry? Do we wake up in the morning hungry for God's guidance in our lives? Because something that I've noticed about human behavior is that often if people want something badly enough, they will find a way to make it happen, to make it their priority. Are we hungry for the telling of the story of God's revelation of Jesus? Do we hide his word in our hearts? Do we acknowledge that the scriptures are a merciful gift? Hebrew children were expected to memorize the Pentateuch by age 12. This is what the bar mitzvah was originally intended to, to signify. The Pentateuch. This is not like memorize the book of Jude. This is like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Memorize. By you ever try to memorize Leviticus? <laughs> wow. The scriptures were, were revered in their culture, right? In the scriptures, we can read about God's character. We can read about Jesus. Okay, this does not blow your mind that God became a human being and dwelt on the earth with humans like us. Those humans spent time with him, wrote down what he said, and now we have those words in front of us right now. Does that not blow your mind that the Messiah's words are written down for us to read like in your pocket. That's amazing. We can read about the work of the Holy Spirit, the acts of the apostles, and how the Holy Spirit is being moved into us for us to carry on the story. We have even more scripture than the ancient Hebrews did. We have historical documentation of all that God has done. I never liked memorizing scripture growing up. I just didn't. But during, you know, the 2020, 2021 season, I felt compelled to memorize the words of Jesus because I was kind of at the end of myself for some of this. And I found that the scriptures in the wilderness were a real source of hope and peace for me, right? I memorized a few parables from Jesus. I even memorized the entire Sermon on the Mount, three chapters in Matthew. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> 
I only tell you that because we were all quarantined and I had nothing else to do. So I, I memorized it. And I don't say that to brag. I say that to tell you what I experienced. Because when I memorized just all words of Jesus, three chapters of Jesus speaking, what I realized is that throughout my day, it impacted every single thought that I had. It changed my lens and my view of my world. And if I had said everything I was thinking, I think it would have drove people crazy. But everything came back to something that Jesus said. We have so many voices in our minds. And it's about learning to discern which one is God's. Vigorous study of the Bible will help us discern what God's voice is, what he says, and therefore what his voice sounds like, like a sheep to the shepherd. We'll know. We'll know his voice. Reading the scripture effectively, it assists us in remembering the character of God. Therefore, when he speaks, we'll know that it's him that's saying it, right? Christians who believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us, we have this faith that he is with us. We have that faith, but in a lot of ways, it feels like he's not with us, right? If we're being honest, he doesn't manifest his presence in a pillar of fire here on the stage. That'd be cool, but he doesn't. Jesus doesn't have like office hours on Mondays and Wednesdays where we can go pop in and ask him a question. In a lot of real ways, it feels like God isn't with us. When I got my first apartment coming out of college, or actually my, my senior year of college, there were moments where I could hear my mom's voice, even though she wasn't physically with me, right? <laughs> like when I was cleaning the bathroom, for example. I had vivid memories of my mom teaching me how to clean my bathroom growing up, right? She wasn't there looking over my shoulder, scrutinizing everything that I did, but out of our deeply rooted relationship, I could recall her instruction and apply it to my current situation, right? Sometimes I wish my roommates could also have heard my mom's voice. <laughs> Six men sharing one bathroom is nothing I would wish upon my worst enemy. But, see, we have to remember that God is a father to us individually, yes, but he's also a father to us as a civilization. He's a father to us as a body of Christians. Millions and millions of Christians that have come thousands of years before us and will come however long after we're a part of a so much bigger story than just our lives right now. So even if we can't hear what God is saying to me right now today, I know what his voice sounds like because he has said it to so many people for so long. Even when you can't hear him, you can know what his voice sounds like in the scriptures. The word remember is used 231 times in the Bible. Because we are prone to wander, we are prone to forget, and we need to constantly be reminded of who God is and who he's made us to be, right? He's in the business, too, of transforming us into people that he can trust with his kingdom. So sometimes when we can't hear his voice, perhaps this is a father using good parenting principles and giving instruction and allowing us to make a decision on his behalf because he's called us to be his ambassadors. So sometimes we have to trust that when we spent time with God and he's taught us what we need to know, that we can act in a situation out of God's character. And just because the clouds don't break and doesn't reveal to me exactly what I need to say and exactly what I need to do, that he's prepared me for this moment. Does that make sense? Now in Nehemiah, we see that later in this chapter, or in this book, there's a refusal to remember. Because even though they rebuilt the temple and opened up the Torah and they reestablished their culture, the presence of God never came back to the temple in the same way. So they began to drift. They started out strong, but then they started living immorally again. They started working on the Sabbath and ignoring the law. 
And the book ends with Nehemiah basically saying, like, well, I tried. <laughs> Can you imagine? Your entire life's work goes to literally rebuilding a city, and then you're like, well, next time, <laughs> right? Chronologically, Nehemiah takes place right before the 400 years of silence, the intertestamental period. And during that time, God doesn't manifest his presence. He doesn't speak through the prophets. It's communications blackout. But instead of the Israelites staying true to who they know God had called them to be, instead of remaining devoted to the revelation of God in his word, they drifted because they thought he wasn't speaking. But he had been speaking. For thousands of years, he had been speaking. They had a lot to go off of. And then what happens at the end of this intertestamental period? Enter Jesus, the Messiah. Now, Jesus, the Messiah, he went around teaching that the transformation of the heart was really important, that just sin management and moral behavior was not going to cut it. Because God desires that we obey him not because we want to be morally good, but because we want to actually be with God. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they had suspect reasons for learning the scriptures so well. They knew the scriptures better than anybody, but it was usually to uphold their own religious status and suppress the spirituality of others, to misuse the name of the Lord. Jesus even says this in John 5. He says, You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. They studied the scriptures vigorously, but they didn't even recognize God when he walked into the room because their motivations were not in knowing God. It's important. A hunger for the scriptures rooted in a desire to be in loving communion with God. Together, those things need to happen. We need to have both the desire to to hear God's voice in relationship with him and a commitment to study his word so that we know what his voice sounds like when he's speaking. But then there's this whole other side to hearing God that is a a bit more mysterious. (laughs) Lots of mystery. How many of you know that life is boring without mystery? It is. When I was younger, I had this incessant need to have an answer to every single one of my questions. And as I got older, I realized that sometimes there is not an answer to a lot of my questions. When I look out in the images of the James Webb Telescope, there's just some stuff I'm not going to have answers to, and that's okay. Somehow I've gotten used to the phrase, I don't know. God does somehow, mysteriously, in ways that I just say, I don't know. He speaks to us. He guides us. He invites us. And that's how relationships work, right? Like, good and healthy relationships are not one-sided in their communication. Most healthy and good relationships have a two-way pipeline of communication, right? There's a comedian who said this, when we talk to God, we're praying. When God talks to us, we're schizophrenic. I do not want to make light of mental illness in any way. But isn't it interesting that for us to understand that we pray to God, yeah, this is a commonly accepted custom on the planet. Lots of people do this. But the idea that God would talk to us makes us crazy. But this is what we believe, that when we speak to God, who wants to be in a reciprocal relationship with us, that he will indeed speak back to us. God speak to us in weird ways. I mean, I had one pastor buddy that he was far from God, and he actually encountered Jesus for the first time on an acid trip. I'm not recommending that this be the pathway that you hear the voice of God for the first time, but Jesus leaves the 99 to go after the one, doesn't he? He finds us in our muck, in our sin, in our filth, 
and he calls us to something better. My family and I, when we decided to move churches, I, we only did that because something crazy happened. We were in a, a worship uh, uh, gathering, and a famous worship leader named Stephanie Gretzinger called me out of a crowd of 1,500 people at Arlene Snitzer Hall and prophesied over my life. Hard for me to explain that one, but it happened. I had a moment early in my adult life where I sat in my cubicle at work, and I wept, like, hard. I cried because I can only describe feeling what I thought was the compassion of God on me as I wrote a letter to him. I've been in prayer, and I felt what, what I can only describe as like a weight on me that I need to say this or the weight's going to crush me. I've been in prayer for people, and I've asked God, God, can you show me an image? Can you show me a picture for this person? And I believe that he's done that. I can't explain that. But I know that he has. But see, we living in the 21st century in this Western mindset, we have great difficulty with this because it seems to involve a transrational work of the Holy Spirit, and we don't like that. If I can't wrap my brilliant brain around it, then it can't really be a thing. We in the West may have this issue, but most of Near Eastern people did not. In their view, the spiritual realities of the universe were overlapped with the physical realities of the universe, and they interacted with each other, which makes sense. If you think about the story of the scriptures, it's about heaven and earth being reunited and God and his people coming together. So, of course, heaven and earth are going to overlay with each other and interact with one another. Of course they will. The scriptures give us all sorts of fascinating examples of God speaking to human beings in very strange ways, right? The burning bush to Moses. That's weird. As far as I know, that never happened again. It happened one time. The voice calling out to Samuel in the middle of the night. Visions being given to Peter and Ananias and Paul. Church history records so many of the early martyrs having lots and lots of dreams and visions leading right up to the eve before their death. It wasn't weird. It was normal for people to hear the voice of God in very transrational ways. But sometimes we're too intelligent in our culture to receive a very simple wisdom that God wants to talk to you. Uh, Willard said this, he said, Christian spirituality as practiced through the ages takes the form of this companionship with Jesus. Spiritual people are not those who engage in certain spiritual practices. They are those who draw their life from a conversational relationship with God. They do not live their lives merely in terms of human, uh, human order in the visible world. They have a life beyond. Some of you might think, well, Lane, this sounds very messy and arbitrary and subjective. It can be, for sure which is why we need to be very careful when we say things like, God told me. When we utter those words, we need to be very careful and certain that we do feel that that is what God has said. I've been a part of churches where that phrase, God told me, has been used to manipulate and abuse people. You won't have to answer for me for that. But God said, you will not misuse my name. It can be very messy which is why we have to know how to discern the many voices in our minds and to know who we're listening to and which voice is God's. That's why we have to take time to know God's character and what he sounds like in the scriptures. Remember, Pentateuch, by the age of 12, you guys are behind, get going. <laughs> Just kidding. We also have to check our motivations. Why do you want to hear God? Because that's going to color what we think we're hearing God say. God wants you to marry me. Hmm. God wants you to practice social distancing, right? 
the Pharisees, they knew scriptures better than anyone else, but they didn't recognize God when he walked into the room because their motives were not rooted in a desire to love God and to love people. This is important. And we have to remember that the heart of God for us is that even when God's voice is corrective, it's always out of love. Even when it turns us towards repentance, even when it causes us to grieve and mourn our sin, it's because it's out of a desire for God to be with us. That's what he wants. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy the Lord has over you, you can find refuge in. The bottom line is that God takes joy in you, and he may get frustrated with us, grieve our sin, but everything in the scriptures points to a very loving, very kind, and very patient God who desires for us to be reconciled with him. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. And that is a powerful truth that's hard for us to accept sometimes. In some ways, we are like the Israelites in the 5th century BC. As we get back to a new normal, what's our first instinct going to be? Do we stand with the scriptures before the water gate and understand that the only source of life that I can find is in you, in you, Jesus? Is that what we're doing? I'm going to ask you to open your communion elements together as we take communion. And I'm going to provide a few points of reflection as we hold these elements. Because Jesus' sacrifice is very much like his voice. He didn't do it just so that we could get away from bad consequences. He did it because he wanted desperately for us to be with him, for us to be reconciled to him. For us to have joy and life in him. He carried the consequence of sin and death. His body was broken. His blood was spilled to purify us, to cleanse us, to forgive us, and to invite us into new life. Because what God wants more than anything with you is that you would know him and that he would know you. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes or to reflect on the elements in front of you. And if you have yet to tell Jesus that you want to devote your life to him, that you want to follow him, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray that prayer right now. The scriptures don't demand that we say a prayer, but it is a good place to start. Maybe you've been thinking about your own life, and you've realized that the way you're doing things isn't working, and that the wisdom that you try to tap into isn't life-giving, and you're ready to reflect and to see that what Jesus did was powerful enough for even you. That he loves you and that he wants to be with you and he wants you to be with him forever. So just take a moment and just pray. And just tell Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready to turn away from all the things that I've been doing that aren't going well. And I'm ready to give my life to you. I'm ready to receive the gift of forgiveness that you freely give. I'm ready to receive that forgiveness and say thank you. And I want to give you my life. And for all of us in the room, I want you to ask yourself, why do you want to hear the voice of God? Is it a desire born out of love for God and for others? Think about the way that your motivations might color the way you hear the voice of God.
And I want you to ask, do you feel a desire and a hunger to hide the scriptures in your heart? Do you have a longing to know what God's voice sounds like in his word? If you don't and you want that, pray to the Holy Spirit and ask that the Spirit would give that to you. That you would discover a new hunger for the scriptures. And I want you to invite the transrational Holy Spirit to speak to you. What would he say to you? Because scripture and law without abiding is just religion. This is an opportunity for you to remember that God wants to be in a reciprocal relationship with you. That Jesus is not interested in you joining his religion. That he wants you to be a part of his family. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as we take the elements. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In a moment, we're going to take some time to stand and respond to God in singing and, and prayer. If you have been waiting in a season and you want some encouragement, you'd like to hear the voice of God, um, there are going to be people at the sides here at these tables that are available to pray for you. I would encourage you to come and receive prayer. But before we stand and sing, I just want us to take about 30 seconds to just pause and to invite the voice of God to speak to you. Because at the end of the day, what I had to say is not very important. What God would say to you is of paramount importance. So let's make some space together and invite God to speak to you now. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are with us, that you have promised that. I pray that as we go about our lives and we be attentive to your voice, that as we wait, as we find ourselves in, seating, in the seasons of the in-between, that we'd be desperately looking to you to hear your voice and your instruction. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.